Welcome back after the break. Of course, come back, we got a whole bunch of things due now. So, uh, quiz one, if you didn't take it already, about half the class, a little less than half the class has. I think there were nine uh, attempts as of this morning, a little bit ago. So if you haven't gotten that already, that is due today. So it'll cl lock at 6 o'clock tomorrow morning. So get that done at some point. That covers the first two chapters, chapter 0 and 1. Uh, homework 1 is due today. I know a couple people have already turned it in. You do have till 6 o'clock tomorrow if you're submitting it online on D2L. So you can submit it again later today or overnight, whenever you want to get it, as long as I get it by 6 o'clock. The other thing that's due is if you did not get me the scientific methods activity, I know a bunch of you finished it in class, some of you took it to work on over the weekend, I do need that back today so that I can get, get them graded and back to you. There is a Dropbox for labs on D2L2, so if you didn't have it and you need to scan or photograph it or whatever to submit it, you can submit that again sometime today. That way I can look at them, grade them, and have them back to you on Friday. Uh, other things coming up, uh, next week we have an exam on the 8th, so the exam will be Monday. As I said, I will not be here. Um, Professor King is going to be covering it uh, for me, be proctoring the exam. And then hopefully, depending on my schedule after, I'll be able to get in and get them graded and at least get grades up to you. Normally I like to have the grades back the next day. If I'm there on Wednesday, then I will certainly have them back for you that day. So that will cover the first three chapters. We'll be finishing up chapter two between today and on Friday. The other thing that will be available next week is the first of the iTunes quizzes. Uh, there's four of these. These cover the pictures of the day that we talk about. Um, and this one covers the pictures from the first day of class through Friday, this Friday. So it'll cut off at the 5th. And you can take a look at those pictures. You can listen to my podcast if you want to. They're not required for it. And there's a set of 15, or sorry, set of 12 questions based on randomly chosen pictures from those days. So it may be one I talked about in class, it may be one from a Saturday that we didn't talk about. Um, you do have 20 minutes on those and actually on those ones I give you two tries so you actually get to go take it twice. I will let you know, don't just write, figure out all the questions because it's randomly chosen so you might get a completely different. You might get a picture on the 18th of August on the first one and it might give you the 19th. It's just a random selection of those. There's one question for each day and it'll pick you a random set, random set of those. So it might help you on the second try that you might see a few of them again but you won't necessarily see the exact same set of questions. When you do do it twice, your highest score is what I take. So it's not like you're taking the second time, you got to do better or you, or you lose. If you get a 10 the first time and a 2 the second time, the 10 records as your score. So whichever one is the highest. So the second try can't hurt you. It can only help. And then there's a couple other things that are coming up due next week. I will give you out, well it won't be due next week, I'll be giving you out homework number two. I will give out on Friday. And there's a couple other assignments that are going to be coming up due towards the end of uh, next week as well that I'll talk to you more about on Friday. Uh, the other thing I wanted to mention, I gave everybody their solar observations back. There were some comments on them. Um, a lot of them, if you got a good or an okay, it means you were on the right track or close to on the right track. If I made a comment about the shadow being too long or too short, there may be something with the way you're measuring. Again, as I said the first time, you want to make sure that it's not something that points at the top where you're trying to measure the shadow from. That will definitely uh, cause problems. Your shadow will come out much too short if you do that. If your object points to the top, your shadow measured will come out a lot shorter. 
If your shadow's coming out too long, one of the problems that I see is that if you're looking down on your object, say you're looking down on the can, you'll often get a shadow that casts something like this. You want to measure from the very front of the can. That's your shadow. You don't want to measure around the edge of the can. I know that's one that sometimes people get. It makes your shadow too long. Because if you're measuring here, this is where the cat shadow, where this shadow is being cast from, is this distance. So that's one of the problems that sometimes uh, occur, occurs. Either one of those can make your shadow either too long if you're trying to measure an object that points at the top, or too short if you're not measuring it properly as you look down, as you look down there. So don't throw away the observations if they're bad. Keep them. You know, if I said it's way off, don't worry about it. Keep it. Um, when we do the write-up, it gives you something when the errors to talk about. So keep them anyway. Just try to improve, improve them as best you can. Uh, timing should be as close to 1.15 as you can. If you're within about a half an hour to 45 minutes, you're pretty good. Most of you were. Uh, but make sure you're getting as close to it. If, if it doesn't clear up, if it's cloudy at 1.15, it doesn't clear up till 3 or 4 in the afternoon, wait till the next day. It's getting too late. The shadows are going to get way too long and they're going to be thrown off from what you would get when the sun is highest in the sky. The other thing that I saw on them, and I really didn't comment on it for the most part on each paper just because there were a number of them. Uh, when you do measure and write down the measurements, measure it as accurately as you can. I got a whole bunch that told me it was, you know, three inches or five inches or 12 inches or whatever exactly. Now maybe when you're measuring something, when you're measuring the shadow, if it was, that's great. Was it three and a quarter inch? Was it two and three quarters? It can make a big difference in the end in the calculations if you're not measuring it as accurately as you can. I'm not looking down to you know the uh, tiny one one hundredth of an inch or anything, Mark. But if it's three, if it's a little bit more than three, try to estimate. You know, maybe it's three and an eighth. Maybe it's a little bit more, or maybe it's a little bit less. Maybe it was exactly three, and that's great if it is. But try to measure it as accurately as you can, because I could see some where it makes a difference as to. You know, where the shadow might have been a little bit longer or a little bit shorter, and that would have got the observation come out a lot better. So just a couple things I wanted to mention. I couldn't really write all of that on everybody's, everybody's paper for you. Any questions on anything, anything there? So three things to make sure you complete today. Scientific methods activity. If you turned it on Friday or already this morning, you don't need to worry about it. Make sure I get that. Make sure I get the homework. I know a few people have given it to me already. And finish up the quiz. Yep, you can take a photographs of it. Just make sure they're just make sure they're legible that they so I can read it. <laughs> that's, that's yeah. As long as it comes out with a good resolution on it, I can usually get a pretty good. I can usually read them pretty well. But that's perfectly fine for either for the homework if you have written copies that you're going to be photographing, or for the scientific methods. Photographs usually work pretty good for it. All right. All right. Well, let's go to our picture of the day for today then. And this is actually a star cluster that we're looking at. This is the butterfly cluster. And you can see how the stars all form nicely, neatly in the shape of a nice butterfly there, right? Yeah. Maybe? Do we see the butterfly? I don't, I, I, most of these I don't, I don't get. I don't always get all of them. So, Nice little butterfly there, but that's the name that somebody happened to recognize that pattern, which is one of the things our mind does. Our mind is very good at making patterns out of just 
a random group, what is really a random grouping of stars, our mind is very good and tries to put some kind of order it, try to resemble it to something that we, that we recognize. This is what is called an open cluster, and we'll look at different types of clusters later on in the course. An open cluster is relatively young, and it's not bound together. All these stars form together from the same great cloud of gas and dust, but they're slowly spreading out into space. It's relatively young, and again, relatively young has a different meaning astronomically than it does to us. It's maybe 100 million years old. 100 million years, ancient for us, but for stars, that's really very new. Only 100 million years, our sun is 5 billion years old, so 1 50th the age of our sun. Very, 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 very young. You know, 50-year-old person, one-year-old person. Big, big, diff big, big difference in ages. Same kind of thing here. This is, you know, a baby compared to a 50-year-old person. Um, a lot of hot blue stars, and they are slowly spreading apart. Will we notice it? Again, the astronomical timescales are too long. We will never notice it. Come back now, come back 50 years from now, it's still going to look exactly the same as it looks now. But over astronomical times, they'll slowly spread out. And if we came back in, in a billion years, they would be scattered all over the place. They would no longer be part of that cluster. The open clusters will slowly dissipate over time. There's another type of cluster that we'll look at that's a globular cluster, which is actually bound together. And they stay together for many billions of years. Sort of like a mini galaxy, they stay together forever. So this is just one, it's a pretty picture there. We're looking towards the general direction of the center of our galaxy. And that's why we see how many stars. You see all this whole background covered in stars. We're looking really right through some of the more densely populated portions of our galaxy. We see the stars. We see not only the cluster, but we see a lot of gas and dust, which is this brighter red area and browner area over here, are gas and dust in our galaxy. And that is what is the birthplace of these stars. So these stars form from something that started out like a big cloud of gas and dust like this in space that eventually collapsed down. And we're coming up in a couple weeks, we'll be going over the details of how stars actually form and looking at a lot of these, a lot of these nebulae. We've still got a few things. We've got to learn how we study about them. And then we've got to talk about telescopes next week before we can really get on to a lot of the a lot of the details that we want to get to for the class. So, questions? Nope, nope, alrighty. Well, let's go ahead back to chapter two then. Let's see, we've done the electromagnetic spectrum, so we were going to start on uh, what we call uh, black body radiation or thermal radiation. Clear off these. A spectrum, which is what this is looking at, a spectrum is really splitting up the light and looking at it, how much light you're getting at each individual wavelength or at each individual frequency. So at every wavelength you'd look at very, very long wavelengths out in the radio part of the spectrum and you'd measure how much intensity you're getting from an object, how much energy you receive from it. And you could plot a point there. A little bit further in towards the infrared, you'd measure again and you'd find out in this case you're getting more energy. 
Maybe in the visible, you're getting lots and lots of energy. And as you head out towards the X-rays and gamma rays, you're getting less and less. So you just look at each part of the electromagnetic spectrum that we talked about last time, measure how much energy we get. The black body is an ideal radiator. Is what we call an ideal radiator. It emits energy that depends only on its temperature. It doesn't matter what the object is made up of. Could be made up of hydrogen, could be made up of helium, could be made up of iron. Whatever it's made up of does not matter. The spectrum, the pattern that we get here is exactly the same regardless of what it's made up of. We could do this with a star made up out of hydrogen, heated up to a certain temperature, say 6,000 degrees, the temperature of the saw, the temperature of the sun. We'd get exactly the same spectrum if we took iron in the laboratory and heated it up to 6,000 degrees. We get exactly the same pattern. It doesn't have any preference to what it's made up of. Now, there's details we'll get down to later that we can actually learn what things are made up of, but the overall basic underlying spectrum does not make any difference. It really only depends on the temperature of the object. So, depends on temperature only. Depends only on the temperature. Doesn't matter what it's made up of. Doesn't matter how, what else is going on with it. Just depends on the temperature. So why is it called a black body? Well, an ideal, an ideal radiator here on Earth would appear black. It would be an ideal object. It absorbs any energy that comes into it. Wouldn't be reflecting anything. So it would be absorbing all the energy that hits it. And it would be re-emitting energy depending on its temperature. So, you know, tabletop is a pretty good estimate of a black body. All the light that comes into it is absorbed. It's not reflecting very much. It absorbs all the light, all the light energy that comes into it, the tabletops. If you have black clothing, it's pretty much absorbing all the energy, right? That's why you don't wear the black clothing out in the middle of summer, right? It absorbs all the heat and you heat up. So it absorbs all of the energy coming into it. And it emits energy depending on its temperature. Well, how hot is this? Room temperature? At room temperature, what kind of wavelengths do we admit? Right? Anyone? No? Infrared? Right? You know, night vision goggles, you're looking at the heat. The heat that things are emitting, it's all infrared radiation. So it's emitting infrared radiation. So if you had infrared glasses, you could see it. It would be glowing brightly, right? We'd all be glowing brightly in the infrared. But it's not emitting a lot of visible light, not unless you crank it up a few thousand degrees. Right? If you have a uh, traditional light bulb with the old filament inside, that's what you're doing. You're heating that filament up to incredibly high temperatures and causing it to glow. So when you do that, that causes it to glow. It's still a black body, it's just not a black body at a much higher temperature and therefore able to emit visible light at a much higher rate. So that's an ideal radiator. Again, you got a number of examples, a number of examples here. And really it just depends. The whole spectrum that we see is always exactly the same, but just depends on the temperature. Now, talking about temperature, how do we measure temperatures in astronomy? Well, you're used to 
Fahrenheit, right? That's the one everybody knows very well. Water freezes at 32 degrees and boils at 212. Uh, most sci a lot of science uses the Celsius scale. Water freezes at zero and boils at 100 degrees. Astronomers and a lot of scientists use the Kelvin temperature scale, which is very close to the Celsius scale, except it's offset so that there is a zero. So that zero is not, you know, not water freezing. Water freezes at 273 degrees Kelvin. But there is a minimum temperature. There is a, a lowest temperature you can possibly get. And the Kelvin scale is set to have that temperature be zero, absolute zero. You cannot get any colder than that. Why can't you get any colder? Well, it all goes back to what temperature is. Temperature is really a measurement of the motion of the particles. So when we take the temperature of the atmosphere, we're measuring how fast the particles of the atmosphere are moving. Faster they're moving, the higher the temperature. Slower they're moving, the lower the temperature. If you can imagine getting colder and colder, those particles are going slower and slower and slower and slower. Eventually, take that to its conclusion, they've got to stop. If they stop moving, can you get any colder? Once you've stopped them moving, you're as cold as you can possibly get. And that's what we call absolute zero. Now, it's not temperatures that we're used to, right? It gets pretty cold here in winter. But it doesn't get close to 459 degrees below zero, right? That would be, that would be absolute zero. That would be everything physically, you know, not just that you're so frozen that you can't move, but even the particles, you know, the atoms would stop their vibrations. Yes? Um, measure by certain measurements and you can calculate how it's, how it's de declining, how the particles are slowing down and you can figure out where they're going to. We can get down to temperatures pretty close to that. Not exactly, but we can get actually down to temperatures very, very close to, to that. But you can just measure how the particles are slowing down as you go down to you know, negative 100, 200, 300, 400, 420, 430. And you can measure, okay, where is it going to physically stop? And that's what we define for the Kelvin scale. And that's what you're going to hear me when I talk about the temperature of the sun. You know, I'm talking about the Kelvin, the Kelvin scale. Uh, for big numbers, it really doesn't matter. Kelvin and Celsius are essentially the same. Um, top number given up here is the temperature at which hydrogen starts to fuse together, the energy source of the sun. Well, in Celsius, it's 10 million degrees. In Kelvin, it's 10 million and 273 degrees. Does it really matter? Or if you, have, if you have $10 million, do you care about $273 more? Eh, is it going to make a big difference to you? Not really. Now in the, in the Fahrenheit scale, it's quite different. So you'll, but you'll hear me refer to all numbers I'm doing are pretty much in the Kelvin scale that we'll talk about in terms of temperatures. We'll talk about things that are just a couple degrees. Space, the temperature of empty, almost empty space is about three degrees. So three degrees above the minimum that you can possibly have. That's the remnant from the Big Bang that permeates everything. So just a little bit of an aside there as to what we mean in temperatures. When I give you temperatures, I'm typically not giving Fahrenheit uh, temperatures. It's all going, to be, all going to be Kelvin. All right, so let's look at the radiation again. This is the same type of black body curve that we looked last time. But we're going to come up with a couple of radiation laws now. So let me give you the first one. 
And the first law says that the wavelength peak, what wavelength this object is primarily giving off, depends on the temperature. Depends on the temperature, and not just the temperature, but one divided by the temperature. That means if you get a really, really high temperature, one divided by a really big number is a really small number. That means you're getting really, really tiny wavelengths. So hot objects give you really short wavelengths. Well, there's the sun in the middle. The sun is about 6,000 Kelvin. That gives a lot of visible light, relatively short wavelengths. We looked at a, nebula, we looked at a star cluster that has some uh, gas around it. You might be looking at things that are several hundred degrees. Much cooler, lower temperature means the wavelengths are going to be longer. You're going to be looking at a lot more infrared radiation. If you look at some of the very dark clouds, dark dusty clouds, which look empty to us in visible light, well, they're still emitting energy. That same curve is here, but the peak of it, because this is so cold, this might only be tens of degrees Kelvin, tens of degrees above the coldest you can possibly get. So that peak is now way off in the radio part of the spectrum. So if you look at it in radio, it's nice and bright, emitting lots of energy. If you look at it in visible, it's dark, nothing, absolutely nothing to be seen. So that's what the first law is telling you, is telling you where that peak is, where most of the energy is coming out, depends on the temperature. Hot object gives you very high energy. Really, really hot objects will emit lots of x-rays. So some of the very hottest objects will be emitting a lot of ultraviolet, a lot of x-rays. Some of the coolest objects will be emitting radio waves. So the first law is really telling you where that peak is going to be. And if we go back to what we looked at previously with the electromagnetic spectrum, this is one of the reasons we learned a lot when we were finally able to observe the entire spectrum. Right? 100 years ago, it was all visible light. But so we couldn't see these nice dark objects. What's going on deep down inside this? We couldn't see. It was just a big dark blotch to us because it was emitting hardly any visible light. It was an incredibly tiny amount. You couldn't see anything there. Now that we can look at it in the radio, we can learn a whole bunch about what's going on inside this dark, uh, this dark uh, globule. Same thing with very hot objects. Yeah, they're emitting some visible light. But they're doing most of their energy, a lot more of their energy is being emitted out in, in the ultraviolet, in the x-rays. So now once we could get satellites up above the atmosphere to be able to observe those, we learned a lot more about that. So that's the first of our radiation laws, just tells us where the peak of that spectrum, where that little peak here is going to be, depends on the temperature. High temperatures shifted to very, very short wavelengths. Low temperatures, it's shifted to very, very long wavelengths. Question, yes, sir? Uh, does this include in, uh, radiation coming from a black hole? No, that would be different than that would be different than this. This is just objects that this is objects like stars that are heated up internal, internally like that. Not something like that would be a completely different type. There are other types of radiation that don't apply. This doesn't apply to all radiation that we see. Uh, only uh, the most of it. Most stars that we see, stars and nebulae and things like that would apply this way. The second radiation law 
It's written here as an equation. Uh, really, the energy, called F for flux, but the amount of energy each square meter, each square inch, each square yard is emitting depends on some constant. We don't need to worry about that. That's just a constant times temperature to the fourth power. So that means if you look at two objects, two of these black bodies, say two stars, and you have star one is 3,000 Kelvin, and star two is like the sun, is 6,000 Kelvin. Okay, One star is twice the temperature of the other. This is a star like the sun. This is a nice, cool red star. That tells us that each little chunk of area, each square meter on the surface, in this star, in this star emits just say one unit of energy. If each square meter emits one unit of energy there, this second star, which is twice as hot, doesn't emit twice as much, or four times as much, or eight times as much, but 16. Big change in temperature, 3,000 to 6,000 degrees, yeah. Even bigger change in the amount of energy each little section of that star is emitting. Each similar size section is now emitting 16 times the amount of energy. There are stars that are hotter than this. There are stars that are 12,000 or 20,000 or 30,000 degrees. They're emitting, each little chunk is emitting a lot of energy. A lot more energy than these little tiny cool stars. This is one of the reasons that we know this equation tells us that the sun has really not changed its energy output significantly over the last few billion years. We know that it's been pretty consistent because if it hasn't, if it was changing by this much, but even less, if it was just changing by a few percent, all of a sudden it would get a lot hotter or a lot colder. Not just seasonally. But really, it would get enough to boil the ocean. You could get enough, you know, good decent change would be enough to start boiling the oceans or to freeze everything. So the fact that we're all still here billions of years later means that the sun must have been pretty close. Yeah, it could get a little bit warmer, a little bit cooler, but no significant changes in its temperature over the billions of years since life started forming here. We know that the sun must have been that, that constant because any little change in the temperature Go to 6,100 degrees. Well, that's not that much more, right? But all of a sudden, you're going up many, many times more, not just a little bit in the temperature. It makes a big, big difference in the amount of energy that it's putting out. So just because of this equation is one reason we know that the sun has been very, very constant over time. And it compares, comparing the stars, some of those stars that we looked at in the picture today, a lot of blue stars, extremely high temperatures. 15, 20,000 degrees. Say 18 for convenience. That's three times hotter than the sun. How much more energy are they emitting? Three times three times three times three. 81 times. So those blue stars, if they're about 18,000 degrees, which is perfectly reasonable for them, each little section of their area it's emitting 81 times the amount of the sun, uh, light energy that the sun is. So you put one of those right where the sun is, it gets pretty hot here real quick because they're emitting a lot more energy. And there are stars hotter than that as well. 
This is about as cool as typical stars get, about 3,000 degrees, maybe a little bit cooler than that. And they go up into like the 40s, 40,000, 40 to 50,000 degree at the highest. So unlike the other laws that we've done, we've only got two radiation laws here. One tells us where the wavelength, where the most of the energy is coming out. That depends on the temperature, uh, inverse of the temperature. And the amount of energy that's being emitted per each section depends on the fourth power of the temperature. All right. Now, what we're going to start on here uh, is work on what we call spectroscopy. Uh, we're familiar with the process, I think. We've all seen a rainbow uh, or looked at a prism of light. We know that if we take white light, and that's what this whole thing is showing, there's a barrier here that kind of collimates the light, so you get just one line of it. That goes through this prism. The prism bends the light differently. Short wavelengths get bent more, so that blue light gets bent a little bit more. Red light doesn't get bent quite as much. And when you take that light out and focus it through a lens, you get the rainbow. You get all the colors of the rainbow that were contained in that white light. So white light just mixes all of the different colors together. The spectroscope is the instrument that is used to be able to look at that spectrum, to be able to split the light up into its component colors. That's important because that's how we learn everything about a star, is by looking at the spectrum. Again, I talked a couple times ago, you can't go get a sample of the star and bring it back here and see what it's made up of. All we can do is study the light. Well, if all we can look at is white light, we don't learn a whole lot about it. We really need to be able to split it up. We're going to actually look at this on Friday. We're going to do a couple examples and let you look at uh, different spectra in class. That's going to be part of our lab that we're going to do on, on Friday. But that's the spectroscope is the instrument that we use. We're going to simplify it for most of the ones that I show you here. I'm going to take out and not show you all the lenses and everything else that's there just to make the images a little bit simpler. But there's a couple different types of spectra that we can get. And this is the one that we're going to look at. This is the easiest one, one of the easiest ones for me to do. Um, a spectra is what we call an emission spectrum. So we're going to look at that. Let me get rid of these. So the first one we're going to look at is an emission spectrum. Which are certain frequencies emitted by an atom. This is where it starts to get important. This is where we can learn what things are made up of. Because we get, when we take, heat up some hydrogen gas, get it nice and hot and glowing, like the sun, and we send it through this little slit, we send it through our prism, we focus it through the lenses, and we project it on the screen, we find that we don't get a complete spectrum of the rainbow. It's not just white light. We get a very specific pattern of lines. And for hydrogen, we get a red line. We get a line here in the green, and we start getting several lines in the blue and the violet. And that's it. If you look at hydrogen, you do not get a yellow line. There's nothing in the orange. There's nothing in the yellow at all. This is completely blank, completely dark. And that is because hydrogen has its fingerprint. Hydrogen's fingerprint is this exact pattern of lines. So when we look at an object out in space, whether it be a planet, a star, a nebula, a cluster, a galaxies, 
we see this kind of spectrum, we know that hydrogen, hydrogen gas must be present. And it's very specific. There's no other element, you know, of all those in the periodic table, no other element will give us that exact same pattern. Just like they show down here, right, there's a little barcode. Every single object has a specific barcode that tells you what it is. It's different. You're not going to get any two patterns that are exactly the same. They're all going to be slightly different, identifying different objects at the store. Well, same thing here. Every single one of these, every single atom is going to give you a different pattern. So hydrogen gas gives you one pattern. Uh, helium will give you a different pattern. Oxygen will give you another one. And neon will give you another pattern. No matter what object you heat up, you get a completely different pattern of lines. And that's one of the things you're going to look at on Friday. I'll give you several different stations set up here. So you can actually go around and look at five or six different elements. So here's a couple examples just to give you an idea of what those fingerprints are like. There's hydrogen. Bright red line over there. A few down here to the blue. Maybe greenish blue to blue to violet. Bunch of lines there and that's it. Nothing in between. If we look at helium, we also get a nice red line and some down here, but we get a distinct yellow line. Completely absent in hydrogen. So if we want to distinguish whether something has hydro is hydrogen or helium, we look for that specific pattern. Neon, right, you've looked at a neon sign, they're usually glowing orange and red. That's because all the lines that they're doing are pretty much way over in this part of the spectrum. A whole bunch of lines there. Uh, mercury, sodium, again a different pattern. Sodium doesn't has hardly any lines. At least in the visible part of the spectrum. A couple yellow ones and that's about it. Mercury has a few more. But they're all completely different patterns. And we can do that for all of the elements. Well, there's five examples there. Well, we could do it for all 92 naturally occurring isotopes and you would get a different pattern for every single one of those. So this is way we can actually figure out you know, what the sun is made up of. What, are, what components are there to the sun? It's not quite that easy. Mainly because it's not, oh, there's hydrogen, there's helium. They're, they're nice and easy and distinguished here. Whereas if we actually look at the spectrum of the, oops, I pushed that one later. I'm sorry, I moved it. Give me a second. Let me do that one first. There it is. I'll come back to that other slide. Don't worry about it. Um, if we look at the spectrum of the sun, we actually see something like this. Can you see the hydrogen pattern? No. Can you see the helium lines? No. They're all, all of it is buried in here. There's one of those bright hydrogen lines in the red up there, but these are just strips. So this one goes and then you pick up the next one. So if you want to do this on one big long strip, it would take you know, a number of slides to do. But there's hydrogen. Uh, we had the couple of those bright yellow lines we saw here. Scattered things. The sun has pretty much the vast majority of the elements there. We can find hydrogen, we can find helium, we can find carbon and nitrogen and oxygen and neon and all the different elements are present here in the sun all put together. So then you've got to work backwards. You've got all these different lines. You've got to take it apart to find out what, what is in there. So it's a little bit more complex than what we're going to look at in class today and that's why I like to show you this one. Here's what the spectrum of the sun actually looks like and trying to figure out where all those lines are and which ones are hydrogen and where's the helium line, where's the neon lines, you know, up in here there's some neon, what's down here in the blue, there was some mercury that was down in here, which ones are the hydrogen down here. 
it gets very, very complex quickly. So let me go back now to what we were looking at because we'll look at the second, another type of spectrum. Emission is bright lines. Two is absorption, which is dark lines. So we can get an absorption spectrum. We see dark lines. That's where we get that very hot object that gives us the whole rainbow that we looked at first. And we look at it through a cool gas. So we have the hot object here, a light bulb. We have a gas here that we're looking through. Then we put it through our same little spectroscope. We see the combination. We see all of those specific color, all those colors, the whole rainbow but very specific wavelengths depending on what that gas cloud is made up of are removed. This gas cloud actually removes those lines that it likes. So hydrogen likes that red line. If you send white light through a hydrogen cloud it wipes out that red line. It wipes out those blue lines. So those are two different types of spectra that we can see. The other one was the continuous spectra that we looked at first. was a continuous spectrum. That is the whole rainbow. So we're looking at all the colors. From red through violet we see the entire, entire rainbow. That's the hot bulb. This is what we see in the sun. The sun is not quite a perfect black body, not a perfect ideal radiator. It's sort of like this light bulb, but around the sun there is an atmosphere. So the sun doesn't just stop when you glance up at the sun there or you see it through the clouds, you see that nice little disk. It goes well beyond that. There's actually an atmosphere around it. And that's what we're actually measuring when we take this spectrum. We're really seeing the sun itself produces pretty much solid white light. When it goes through the atmosphere of the sun, then we can measure what that is made up of. And that's where we see those absorption lines. And that's actually where we get this kind of spectrum. So when we look at the spectrum of the sun, we see an absorption spectrum. Pretty much all the stars we look at will see this kind of spectrum. Stars, galaxies emit pretty much an absorption spectrum is very common. That means there's some hot source there that's emitting a lot of energy. There's some kind of gas around it that is absorbing very specific wavelengths. In this case, a whole ton of different wavelengths for all the different elements on the periodic table. Yes, ma'am. Yes. When focusing them through a uh, prism. prism. Yes. How do you get the, the spectrums with stars if you don't have that right in front of you to be able to? How do you get the spectrum of a star? Actually, there's several different ways, and prisms are one of them. They can actually use, there are telescopes that actually put a prism, a, a piece of glass that is pointed on the, on the front of the telescope and actually will separate and instead of taking images like we saw for the day where we had lots of stars and things, you get a little tiny spectra for each one. You can do that. Uh, typically there's also more detailed equipment that you can collect the light and then send it through optically and then spread the light out after, after it's collected. That's typically how it's done. Now it works well if you're only trying to look at a couple different objects. 
the prism ones work really nice if you want to take a picture of that whole section of the sky and see a little spectrum of every single star. Don't get near it. You're not going to be able to get an image like this. Much too high resolution. You're seeing way too much detail. You, sun's nice because it's sun emits so much light. You can spread it out pretty well. Does that? So there's a couple different ways they can do it. Uh, typically what we'll use here is a little piece of plastic with little tiny lines etched into it extremely close together that behaves much as a prism does. It's easier than carrying using a bunch of prisms around. Alrighty? Good. Alright, so we have now, I've kind of given you, two, given you these already up here, but Kirchhoff's laws tell us when we get each of these three types of spectra. So I've done them kind of out of order here, but the continuous spectrum is one is a continuous spectrum is given off by a solid, a liquid, or a dense gas. That takes care of just about everything, right? If we take care of all the solids, no matter what it's made up of, all the liquids, and any very, very dense gases, that would be things like the sun. The sun isn't solid or liquid. It's a very, very dense gas materials pushed together. Those pretty much will give you a continuous spectrum. So anything that you take like that, you heat it up. You know, if you can take something, take a hunk of metal and heat it up to extremely high temperatures, it'll start to glow. Right? If you have an electric stove, you've seen it. Right? You're heating that filament up to a really high temperature, hot enough that it starts to turn red and orange. If you could keep cranking it up and put enough energy through it, you could get it going up into yellow and blue and it would get really hot. Until eventually at some point you reach the limit of that material and it melts or disintegrates or whatever would happen to it. So that really, the continuous takes care of just about most things you can think of here on Earth. The other things that you get, we get an emission spectrum you get an emission spectrum when you look through a low density gas. So if you take a low density gas, the atmosphere, not very high density, lower density, and you excite that to glow, you would actually get an emission spectrum. Our, our atmosphere does glow at night sometimes. Um, if you've ever been up far enough north or had the chance to see the aurora when they make it down this far south, the aurora is something like this. It is emission by atoms in our atmosphere. And if you could take a spectrum of it, you would see that nice pattern of bright lines that would tell you exactly what it's made up of. So you could tell us what the atmosphere is made up of, at least what elements are glowing. So a low density gas would do this. Uh, we also saw our picture of the day today. We saw that nice cluster of stars, but you noticed all that red off to the side. That was gas that was being excited by those stars. If we took a spectrum of that gas, we would get emission lines. We could learn what that gas was made up of. So these are very important because it's how we learn what things, what things are made up of. Um, third one is absorption. And before I come back to that, I wanted to go back one other thing. We looked at the sun. One of the elements in the sun that was discovered, what is it, about 100 and, 
Then the last 150 years, there was a new element that was discovered because lines were seen in the sun that weren't recognized anyplace else. And that turns out that that's the element that's named after the sun, helium, Helios. Helium was unknown on the Earth. Doesn't interact with anything, doesn't form any chemical compounds. So it was really unknown on the Earth till like 150 years ago. We didn't know about its spectrum. So we found this unusual spectrum in the, in the sun as we started studying this. And we actually found a new element. Are we going to find any more now? No. Because we know the whole periodic table. We know exactly how many elements there are. The only other ones would be much higher, uh, much further up the periodic table. But before we knew about that, we actually learned and helium was actually discovered in the sun before it was ever found here on Earth. That's how it got its name, the Helios for the sun. So I wanted to just mention that as an aside. Absorption spectrum. We need two things. We need a continuous source or a continuous spectrum source. So we need this. We need a solid liquid or a dense gas. The filament in a light bulb, the heat of the sun. And we need to shine that through a cooler gas. So the sun emits essentially a continuous spectrum down from its surface. As that goes through the atmosphere, the atmosphere of the sun absorbs some of that radiation out. And that means that's why when we look at the sun, we get an absorption spectrum. So these are Kirchhoff's three laws tells us under what conditions we get each of the three type of spectra. Continuous, just the plain smooth rainbow, nothing else. Emission, just specific lines. Just a red line, just a green line, just a yellow line, just a blue line. Whatever it is, whatever pattern, very specific for that low density gas. Absorption, again, what we see most often if we just took a spectrum of the sun, uh, we see a continuous spectrum source. We have the very hot object below, and it shines through a cooler object. All right, what did I have? So this is Kirchhoff's laws again, but now instead of in words, it's in a picture. So this is actually a picture from the textbook here. And we have two objects that are needed to form these three types of spectra. There's a hot bulb, hot energy, continuous source, and there's a gas cloud whatever it's made up of. If you look at just the hot bulb, ignore the gas cloud, you see a continuous spectrum. You get the whole, whole region, whole colors of the rainbow. If you look at just the gas cloud, okay, so if your slit is looking this way and pointing here, looking at just the gas cloud, not seeing the bulb at all, then you get an emission spectrum. You'll get just those bright lines corresponding to whatever element this is made up of. If instead you look, you point your slit so it's looking through the gas cloud at the hot source, as we do with the sun, that would be the interior surface of the sun, that would be the atmosphere. We split that up, we get an absorption spectrum. We get the whole continuous spectrum with certain bright lines removed. Certain bright lines that are no, certain lines that are no longer visible. The pattern is exactly the same. This gas cloud is made up of hydrogen. We're going to see that bright pattern of hydrogen lines here if we're looking this direction. We're going to see it as dark lines if we're looking this direction. The pattern of lines does not matter whether it's absorption or emission. It only depends on what this gas cloud is made up of. 
So that is the way we can tell when we're looking at one of these, whether there's hydrogen, helium, carbon, oxygen, argon, you know, what elements are there? Gold, platinum, you know, what elements are located in that? And in the sun, we find essentially everything on the periodic table. If you look deeply enough, you'll find a little bit at least of everything. How are we doing? Let me see where I am. I'm not going to start that. So let's go ahead and we'll get, get how these lines form is what I want to finish up is what I finish up on Friday. And there's actually like two more sections of this, so we'll get through all that on Friday and then be ready for the exam on Monday. So don't forget if you haven't if you have homeworks now that you want to turn in, I can take them if you have paper copies or the lab from Friday. Make sure I get those today. And then don't forget to do the quiz as as well. Questions?